The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the host, guest, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or the Webster Rockwell Ministries, its management, or other host or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented on KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. Folks, we've been having a lot of issues in the city of St. Louis and the St. Louis metropolitan area, and that's nothing new to anybody if you've been in the area for a long time or even a short time, that the murder rate is a problem. And we're going to discuss that in this hour, and I wanted to give you some information before I introduce our guests. A shot rings out, a young man is hit. He's rushed to the hospital where doctors save his life. Eventually, the gun wound, gunshot wound heals, but he doesn't. He's scared, anxious, and angry. He's just a teenager, but now he carries a gun of his own. He can no longer concentrate in school, so he drops out. We know that there's high rates of gun violence. It's a cycle that's fueled by poverty, and it disproportionately affects African Americans. It affects family, friends, neighbors, and a community, and is especially true in Missouri, which has the highest black homicide victimization rate in the United States. According to a report from 2015, Missouri's rate was more than double the national average at 446.24 homicides per 100,000. There were 194 killings in the city of St. Louis in 2019, including 11 children, according to St. Louis police, which was the second highest level of the decade, an average of 192 murders a year for the past five years. 90% of homicide victims were African American, according to the St. Louis police data. 144 black men died by a homicide, 31 black women, 9 white men, 3 Hispanic men, 6 white women, and 1 Hispanic woman. Of the 2019 victims... 156 were male, 36 were female, including seven boys and four girls, 16 and younger. All of the deaths last year, nearly all, involved guns. Seven involved stabbing, and four were beatings. There were at least eight additional deaths attributed to abuse or neglect that were not counted in the FBI's definition of homicide and were not included in the 194. Four homicides had happened in St. Louis by sunrise on the first day of 2020, according to the St. Louis police, with a fifth by noon. The evidence of this kind of violence often appears in hospital emergency rooms in the United States, and in 2002, Barnes Jewish Hospital had 1,250 trauma admissions, and in 2017, there were more than 4,000. Victims of violence consistently make up 20% of admissions. The Institute for Public Health in Washington University in St. Louis, launched a program in 2018 and is the first in the nation to incorporate three research universities, WashU, St. Louis U, and University of Missouri, St. Louis, and four hospitals, Barnes Jewish, SSM Health, St. Louis University Hospital, St. Louis Children's Hospital, and SSM Health, Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital. The program Life Outside of Violence, or LOVE, is the short name for the St. Louis Area Hospital-Based Violence Intervention Program. It provides For those harmed by stabbing, gunshot, or assault, they receive treatment, support, and resources. They need to find alternatives to end the cycle of violence. And the idea behind this is to help decrease incidents of retaliation, criminal involvement, 
re-injury, and death. And in studio, we have Kateri Chapman-Kramer and Malik Cafe from Life Outside of Violence. Welcome. I wanted to give that introduction to paint a picture because many times I think as individuals within our community, we read in the newspaper or read online or watch the news at night, and we become a little numb to what goes on. I can tell you the people in the emergency rooms are not numb to the violence, and you all are doing something to intervene in that. So welcome to Intune. Tell us a little bit about the background of this program. Sure, so I'll start. Um, so actually, um, in 2012, um, one of the lead social workers, Margie Baytek, um, initiated a victim of violence program. Um, so basically seeing a lot of children um, return for violent injury. And like you stated, they have their medical injury treated, but then return home without much other intervention. So she developed this program, which used um, licensed social workers to basically connect at the point of injury at the hospital and then work with that patient and their family in the community um, after they receive the medical care. Um, and so our program was really modeled off of the Children's Hospital program. So there's many hospital-based violence intervention programs nationally, um, but ours, along with Children's initially, intentionally use licensed clinicians. Um, many of the programs use a more peer intervention specialists or there's different terminology but we really wanted to be able to um, address any mental health needs which exists in most of these cases immediately um, we know in the st louis area there is a gap in access to mental health services and so instead of just referring an injured individual to kind of deal through not only this incident but everything in life before this um, we wanted to have clinicians to be able to address that directly so we have licensed or provisionally licensed social workers or counselors in this role and then a second piece um, really related to the launch of love um, in 2015 um, the former chancellor at Washington University and his wife um, were mentoring a young girl who was shot and killed and so not that nothing was being done before, but it really kind of intensified the reality that the university has a responsibility to address violence in St. Louis. So the university launched the Gun Violence Initiative in 2015. It was expected to be a one-year program to kind of see what could be done in the community, and we are celebrating the fifth anniversary this year in April. Um, and then another key development and how we um, got started, as you said, the emergency department staff, physicians are not numb to this. So it really was, um, grew out of frustration from seeing the same patients come in. So we know that research clearly shows you may have someone come in, let's say with an assault at one point in time, without any intervention, they're likely, they're up to 50% likely to return within a year with a more significant injury and ultimately resulting in death. So um, all of the different players at the um, institutions that you mentioned, so the hospitals, the universities, really came together um, from leadership on down and 
recognized that we needed to really attack this problem regionally. And so years before we even started with intervention, um, everyone came to the table and did everything that they needed to, which if you can imagine having two basically competing systems, mm -hmm. so the SSM and BJC system agreeing to share information was profound. That's big. Huge. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of that data sharing process occurred before we came on board. Um, and so one piece of this is going back and looking at um, previous recidivism rates, so seeing patients that returned across those systems. We know that some individuals will be seen at Barnes at one point in time, go to SLU for a different um, incident, and there was no way to communicate that um, across these systems. Mm -hmm. So sharing that information was key. And then, um, again, before we started, um, the Institute for Public Health, um, as the coordinating body of this program, applied for funding through the Missouri Foundation for Health, and that was awarded in January of 2018. And so then it was time to hire for our positions, mm -hmm. and we all came on board around May of 2018, and then um, launched with the actual intervention piece of the program in August of that same year. Wow. Yeah. Exciting. So how did the, all the universities get involved with that? Because were they interested in the data collection that was going to be generated with this, what I'm going to call marriage of the, the two healthcare systems? Absolutely. So since this is a huge undertaking, there are, are a ton of people that are interested and invested um, in seeing what that looks like. So I would say from a research perspective, absolutely, they want to see both the existing data and the data that comes from this intervention. So we are currently funded um, for three years, and so we will evaluate at the end of that time looking at the differences, well, looking at a number of things, mm -hmm. but the differences of those that return for violent injury without intervention versus those that receive our intervention, and again, a number of other things. And so that was before our time and so years were spent and I think just as word got out that this was um, coming into fruition a lot of people just came to the table and they said this is profound we want to be a part of addressing this in our community but then also how can we contribute to um, you know the literature and what other research can be done to, to forward the, the cause. And again this was a Missouri grant or a federal grant? This is the Missouri Foundation for Health. Missouri Foundation mm -hmm. for Health. And folks, to help you understand urban trauma and being discussed as a chronic disease and not something that just happens in certain areas of our community, that I'm, I'm reading an abstract from, from a, uh, a document. Urban trauma, often presumed to be an acute episodic event, may actually be a chronic recurrent disease related to lifestyle, environment, and other factors of the victims. To test this, an attempt was made to attain a five-year follow-up for, now get this, 501 consecutive survivors of violent trauma seen at one hospital in 1980 to 81. That seems like a long time ago, but bear with me. Of the 501 patients, 263 had medical follow-ups. Of the 263, with one or more trauma-related events after that, and between 1982 and 1997, 44% of those were involved in crimes and 20% of those were deceased. 
So when you mentioned that 50% of these folks who have undergone trauma or these kind of events are going to come back without any kind of intervention, that's staggering. Yes. And what I was reading earlier uh, in some of my research is that not everybody is who is a victim wants to receive this kind of assistance. So I guess who is eligible and then who takes on what you have to offer them? You want to so that? as far as eligibility, um, our program serves from as young as eight, as young as eight up to 24. And so because you have to come in through the emergency room, you know, that's our ground zero. Um, and so they have to be from St. Louis City and St. Louis County, um, which is one of the challenges. But according to how the grant is set up, we have that range of eight to 24, St. Louis City, St. Louis County. And so that's kind of our catchment. And the criteria mm -hmm. is they have to be a significant assault, so something that would bring you to an emergency room. Um, that usually inv involves, like for the pediatric side, that's our kids who have been in some type of bullying, so they've gotten beat up or they've gotten assaulted with something, like an object or something significant, um, our stab wound victims, and of course our gunshot wound victims. So, And how are how are you received when you show up at the hospital? Like, let's let's start this process. Do you get a call from the hospital saying, hey, we have uh, a gunshot wound victim here, or we have a youngster who was, you know, beaten in the neighborhood or something like that? It, how, does it, how does it proceed? And let's, let's walk through how you talk sure. to a client. And I'll share. So Malik is the um, mentor or case manager, which we use interchangeably based upon that participant's need, mm -hmm. out of Cardinal Glennon. So I'll let him speak to his specific site, but I'll share it over okay. across the four sites. Okay. Um, so we get a direct alert. So the hospital system has... Um, a paging system when an eligible patient comes in so we get a direct alert we have built in as much of our eligibility criteria as possible occasionally we get some that um, we're not able to serve like East St. Louis for example um, and then the mentors also receive a daily report of who has been in so we're essentially cross-checking to make sure that we don't miss anyone right nobody falls through the cracks right. and I'll tag off of that how the program is designed is we have a mentor at every hospital. Mm -hmm. So we're we're already in place in each of the hospitals. So while that is our alert system through the pages and the reports of kind of how we identify who's eligible or possible participants, but we're already based. So our there's someone like me, there's five mentors total. So we have one at Glennon, one at Children's, one at Barnes, and one at SLU. And then we have a fifth person who's kind of our floater case manager to kind of help when the numbers are getting higher on our caseloads. Because one of the thing that makes it successful is that we have small caseloads because you need that one-to-one -one right. attention to right. really be able to dig into providing that support after a trauma right. so but yeah. yeah so if Malik is on site then yes the social work team or nursing staff mm -hmm. is contacting him directly to say we have this patient here so a combination of efforts to make sure that we're meeting individuals so in the middle of the night if something happens at 3 a.m. somebody gets a right. text that is a great Say, question. Saying, hey, we're, you know, we've got somebody mm -hmm. here. You need to come in. Are you like on 24-7 yeah. no, call? No, but we, so um, ideally um, the case managers are then meeting with patients in person. So if they're there and in the ED, they're going. Um, most of the cases up to this point have been needing follow-up after discharge. The majority of um, patients are discharged directly from the ED. 
And so currently our team works kind of typical business hours, occasional um, evenings and weekends. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the gaps that we noticed. So we are actually literally in this moment in the process of hiring um, through some funding we received through the Victims of Crime Mm -hmm. Act for community outreach positions. So these will be the individuals that are going in the middle of the night within 30 minutes of contact is our goal or over um, the weekends. Because part of the challenge was doing the outreach for case managers with managing a caseload. So they're out in the community the right. majority of the time. So to be able to get to the hospital in real time right. um, was not always... It was tough to do. Yeah, it was tough to do. So Malik, you show up at the hospital, mm-hmm. and even though you have clients out, you show up at the hospital, what's what's the... You go talk to the family, you talk to the doctor. How, how, does, this, how does this work? So it's, it's a collaboration at Glennon. So well, at all the hospitals, we we check in with our social work team who's in the ED. We figure out who, like kind of a little bit of logistics, what happened, kind of what brought them to the ED. And then our next point at that is to talk to the actual family. Because what we're trying to do initial within that 24-hour window is establish rapport and establish some type of relationship and, and, and provide that wraparound support. Um, it looks different if somebody's going to be in-house because we kind of follow them from ED out. E- so, and ED, folks, is emergency e- department. Emergency room department. So we follow them from ED out. So if they are admitted we're seeing them for the duration of their time of admission every day we're checking in with them we're checking in with the family we're finding out how we can provide any additional layer of support and we're, we're doing that to kind of try to engage their entire support system because that's the nature of what we do as the case managers is my job is to figure out how we can re-engage your supports because something happened that that you've befallen this trauma and so we've got to figure out how to re-engage you in a way throughout your healing not just your physical injury but also like mental health wise and, and kind of provide that wraparound and so if they're discharged i for on the pediatric side we go out to schools i go out to the home we all go out to home we're home-based community-based um if they're working and they need support at the job so so we really engage with them one-to-one peer-to-peer and just trying to get them like that that intense support not just hey okay we'll see you in a month like but actually right. like week to week What's happening? What's changing? What barriers are coming up to your recovery? Are you make, making your follow-up appointments? Are you having issues with uh, getting transportation, those things? So it's it's the mental health piece, but it's also the social part of it. And not just saying, okay, well, well your, your wound's healed, so you should be all good now because everything else is not as visible. So yeah, you, look, you look okay. Because you work with uh, individuals if, they're, if they don't have employment or mm-hmm. maybe they're struggling with housing or food or whatever – you know, th- those are so talk about some of the other things that you're working with with clients that may have precipitated or encouraged a situation, or you want to take remove these things so that they're in a better place. Absolutely, um, I think when this project was in the development on the table, like a, just a theoretical idea, I think the original thought was that as the clinicians, we would go in and we would just work with their trauma from the injury, Mm -hmm. the trauma of the injury. But what we're finding as the clinicians that are going in and doing the work, a lot of things that are popping up are those basic needs, right? Housing, employment, utility assistance, Mm -hmm. basic things that in in ways are traumatic. Um, I always tell people, you know, over the summer I had a young person who said, I expected to be shot. Like, that's not my issue. My problem is when I got home from school and it's 105 in St. Louis and I don't have a glass of water because our water's turned off. They have more of an impact from that than the actual thing that brought them to the program. Okay, now stop. Did you hear that, folks? Did you hear exactly what he said? I expected to be shot 
but I didn't expect when I came home in 105 degrees that where I was staying was going to be so hot. Yep. And so that's what we're finding on the clinic as a case management and the clinician side is how do we begin to put those supports in place so that you can begin to it's like Maslow hierarchy of need you you have to address baseline needs right. so if you don't have anywhere to live or you don't feel safe in your neighborhood right. we, we can't really talk about how you feel about being shot because your priority is not your injury it's I don't have safe school or I'm not in school or I don't have a job so you asking me about a four dollar prescription I, I don't have that so they have a mountain to climb and we're coming and saying okay so how do you feel about being shot and they're like that that's not my issue. So that's the very cool thing about our program is because we're taking it from a holistic and comprehensive approach and we're coming in and we're providing that support all the way around. Now, let me ask you this. This just popped in my head because we interviewed uh, some folks from the Department of Mental Health, the Mental Health Board, and uh, had, yeah. a, had a great, great interview with... Um, Was it Jessica and Serena? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Had a, had a great time with them. Are you, are you guys partnering yes. with them at all? Yes. Do you yep. mind? Because yep. I'm proud to speak on this. Yeah, so we are, we really try to emphasize we are one piece of addressing this in St. Louis. Right. And so we are um, very connected with the St. Louis Area Violence Prevention Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I sit on the service delivery committee, and then my colleagues sit on other committees, community engagement, policy. Um, there's a number of them. Mm-hmm. And so um, love is an integral part, um, and I'll just speak to the service delivery component, because we're working with um, other agencies that are also addressing particularly non-fatal shootings. Um, so I'm sure they shared kind of information that came from the um, a diagnostic report about we're able to address fatal incidents, but not non-fatal shootings. Okay. So currently, um, and I hope I'm not speaking too soon, but this will come come to be. We, because um, we're since we're have immediate access, like we're getting patients that are injured. They don't have to come to us. So that's where the hospital model is effective. Is because you have an opportunity then to meet that person where maybe they wouldn't go to a social service agency otherwise right right. and so there's a couple of other agencies that also have that immediate access and so we are coordinating um when we get that notice together um with united way 211 to make sure that they're connected so we would be sharing information with participants um agreement to do so Um, to make sure that they got to where they needed to be. And then working on what we're calling at this point um, a community response network, if you will. Um, So, and Serena has shared that she, you know, receives feedback from the community that, yes, we have these programs, but in the moment, in the immediate or very soon after, that experience is traumatic, not just for the injured person, but family, neighbors, the kids that are out on mm-hmm. the street that maybe Community. saw it, heard it, siblings, everyone. I mean, even all of us hearing it all of the time um, it's, could be traumatic in some cases. So we really want to work to develop within this network and within this commission, how can we respond? And that's just one piece. That's one mm-hmm. committee. Um, and so I really appreciate the violence prevention commission because it is a number of individuals and agencies across the board that are coming together um, because that's what we need so we're one piece of this larger 
um, system that is working to gotcha. address this. You know, I, and I really appreciate the combined effort because it's not like we're all dispersing, doing our own thing, and knowing that, yeah, there's some other people out there doing the same thing, but you actually are integrated and cooperating and uh, strengthening. Uh, well, we'll, we can't do this, but we know this agency over here is like, I'm going to call it a sister or brother agency, and they can come in and, and assist and help. Uh, and, and when we come back from the break, I want to talk about that because, like, okay, gee, we need to pay for some utility bills. How are we going to do that? Mm -hmm. So you obviously have a group that you can go to to tap into that. Or, gee, we need a little some, some housing support. You can go to a group for that. So we, I want to talk about that when we come back. And then maybe if you could mention also what success stories are out there because a lot of times, you know, getting these things going takes a little bit of, of effort. So we'll talk about that when we come back. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston, The Bintoon. You're listening to KWRH 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. <laughs> Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We've been talking to Kateri Chapman-Kramer and Malik Cafe. From LOVE, which is a program from the Institute of Public Health at Washington University, and LOVE stands for Life Outside of Violence. And before the break, we were talking about how you go to other agencies or you're, you're in need, you're talking to a client and they can't pay an electric bill, and that's what kind of precipitated some things, or they're, they're losing their lease or they don't have any food. How do you go to other agencies and what are those agencies? Maybe you don't necessarily have to name them, but what do you do in those situations? Do you reach out to them and say, hey, I've got this client? Do you have inter interagency agreements, things mm -hmm. like that? Yeah. Um, so we do, um, and so Missouri Foundation for Health has been amazing because we have incorporated a small amount um, through this grant that could support participants in need um, on a case-by-case -case basis. So. A very small amount so we would start there but because we do have those funds um, there is a network that we would leverage what we have and with their donations and contributions they can supplement what we have on a larger scale so um, like for rents or utilities that are you know at, at the limit at the risk of disconnection so there's a couple of agencies in the community that support um, with that we do have agreements um, I'll shout out Employment Connection, mm -hmm. um, and they have contracts, I believe, with Barnes and Children's currently. And so essentially, we want that direct connection. So we want someone that's seeking employment. We know we have a contact, and there's an understanding that when we call or the participant calls, they say, hey, I'm a part of love. You know, what do I need to do to streamline access to employment um so that's an example and i'll let you speak on others i mean I, I think that's exactly what it is i think a big piece of it is there we go uh, a big piece of it is is that we as the case case managers are working to like weave those additional supports so if we're going to provide some help in trying to coordinate utility assistance i also want to make sure if employment is a barrier so then we're going to partner with employment connections and we're going to get you hooked up through there and we're going to identify who needs to be at the table to kind of weave this comprehensive layer of support underneath you so if you need job skills training if you need education we work on figuring out if you need to do ged um we've done great partnerships with like 
like at St. Louis Job Corps um, and working to streamline some of our younger participants to getting into there so they can get a trade. Um, and so just kind of looking at the comprehensive and collaborative issue and then figuring out how we can attack that and what are the right supports instead of giving somebody just a list of referrals Mm -hmm. here's a sheet of paper here's 25 places give a couple calls see what happens so it's more like not let's throw some stuff at the wall and see what sticks but we want to be really dedicated in saying we vetted this resource we have a relationship with this resource let's try this approach and let's keep figuring it out Mm -hmm. so that you can build that base so that you can have independence and Mm self-sufficiency so that you can be in a better place to deal with now the trauma piece of like your mental health, the anxieties that come up. Well, I've had a couple of jobs and I've gotten fired or I was ter- different things that have come up. So now we got to talk about those anxieties and we got to talk about the depression that you feel that have prevented you from getting back into the workplace or, you know, so we, we begin to do it collaboratively. And you're working mainly with individuals because I know we talked about, you know, how this affects family and friends and neighbors in a community. So you're not really doing your work with an entire family, are you or are you? We absolutely are. Um, it's a family systems approach because okay. I most of these folks are living within a family structure mm-hmm. um, and everybody's been impacted in different ways by the trauma. Um, parents feel differently when they have a child who's been a victim of gun violence. Um, how do I keep my child safe? Um, their anxieties go through the roof. Um, if they're in a neighborhood or there's something to happen because we partner with agencies if there's an issue of retaliation or if there is a conflict that needs proper mediation and conflict resolution so that that family can feel safe in their home. Um, so, so we have to work within the system in which our participant is in because there's no way to just isolate them and say, mm-hmm. okay, well, we're going to just work entirely with you, but some of the other things that might be causing challenges for you are because of the system in which you're in, which is your family system. And not everybody who is offered this service takes it, Correct. What's Correct. what's a roughly a percentage? Mm-hmm. Um, I can just share numbers because okay. I can bring down percent. I'm a social worker, not a, <laughs> not a mathematician. <laughs> yeah, so, I'll do the math for you. Um, and this is also part of our strategy to implement people that can respond in real time. So we have outreached um, over 700 individuals since we launched. Okay. And so outreach means any attempt at contact. So if mm-hmm. it's a call and we still don't hear back. That's a outreach. Um, and so we have, I think today we're at 120 that have enrolled in our program. Mm-hmm. And there's a small handful that actively select not to participate. So some of those reasons include um, they're already working with the case manager in a different program. Mm-hmm. They really do experience this as a one-time incident. You know, they're not necessarily engaged in an unsafe um, lifestyle. Um, those types of examples. And so we have upwards of I think it's we're close to 500 that we just don't ever we don't hear back from so you're talking about the 13 14 percent you know 120 of 70 700 and so the national average um is about 20 percent and so we're we are slightly under that and I think part of that is one being able to see them in real time Mm -hmm. two we are going to them so we know in practice that a person has to be ready to engage in some type of intervention or treatment Mm -hmm. and so for us going to them we're offering it right um but they may not even recognize that there is benefit or that would come later and so we have had cases that initially we didn't hear from or um did not want to participate but then six months later 
are starting to have maybe some post-traumatic stress symptoms, mm -hmm. um, increased anxiety, and so then we'll call at that point. So are there a lot of resources that are, in my words now, because I, I really appreciated your response about things thrown on the wall and seeing what sticks, are there a lot of things that are thrown at individuals who are in these trauma events that besides what you guys do? And so the person has to kind of decide, or is it like they're, they're kind of out there and you're, you know, you're offering this service? Because I can imagine, you know, you hear about a lot of different things going out there, you know, faith-based groups, other kinds of uh, nonprofit groups are doing a lot of things within, you know, certain portions of the, of the, the city. And you never know how much is being not given to people, but portrayed to people and presented to people and how much is being received. You know, does that make sense what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll let Katiria speak to like what her opinion is on like what resources are out there. But I'll say from like a perspectives point, um, I think the idea is that I will give you these resources and make them available to you. But the idea is that you then will have the wherewithal to be able to go out and seek it. So right. now you know there's a list of these organizations that can help you in some way. But now the assumption is, is that you're well enough or you're in a space where you can say, OK, let me make these phone calls. And, and I think when you're in a space where you're dealing with a trauma I don't know that people are always in the best position to say, okay, let me keep up with that. In addition mm. to medical follow-up mm. and all of these other things that are coming at me in a time where so much has just happened. And now I'm expected to then turn and figure out which one of these said resources I need to call, which ones, you know, so not saying that they're not there. It's just, I think at the time in which they're given, it may be a lot to absorb. I think you've mm. hit the hit a nail on the head there. I don't think they're given. I think we give them because we have access. <laughs> this is interesting. Two we different have, perspectives. We I have love it. access, but I don't think so. If we have a participant or patient that is discharged from the hospital, mm -hmm. we've experienced from those that we've worked with. Some are not either given follow-up instruction, mm -hmm. or they don't know what it is, or like Malik said, in the transition of getting home after mm -hmm. this violent incident, um, don't know what the follow-up is, mm -hmm. and at that point they're kind of on their own. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the benefit of this program is in some cases, then they've called their case manager and asked like, what well, can I put on this wound? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know how to treat this or where I can go wow. other than the emergency room. Wow. And so we're trying to limit the number of emergency room visits for primary care also. And so I don't know like that there's I don't know what groups, and they probably exist, I just don't know, groups that are going to people after violent injury and mm -hmm. saying, here's some resources. They have to somehow be connected or have a foot in the door mm -hmm. or people have to have access to them. And I think the other piece is that if I saw you briefly, because the reality is that somebody may be shot and they're discharged within a few hours. Mm -hmm. So if I saw you in a few hours, I'm like, hey, I'm Malik. This is what we do. This is our program. I'm also giving you a call. If not, the very next day, the day after that. So if you don't have a chance to absorb it all, I'm already calling you back before you're like, right. oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. When was my appointment? Or I forgot. Or, oh, yeah, you're the guy who said there's these things. Or, And then you have the parent who calls you back maybe a week because you've been making that consistent contact. And they go, I think he's starting to be depressed. Or I think she's starting to have this. And so now they've got somebody who they can go is there a place we can get them counseling? Is there a place where they can go because they need, we need a table in the house because they need mm -hmm. to be able to sit for their meals because of the nature of their injury or, so somebody now that's kind of like the middle person. Mm -hmm. Right, and I was gonna ask, maybe if if the, this would, 
I guess, 17 or 18, depending upon the time when people make the decision to be emancipated, that they say, hey, I don't need this, but maybe the family's like, oh, yes, you do. Mm -hmm. Do you often have that kind of um, odds where a family's saying, you need to do this. This is a great thing. And the person Mm -hmm. who's been the victim of this is like, no, I don't need that. Oh, yeah, because I think there's a desire for someone who's been injured, especially from violence, to put their life back together and get back to normal. Right. But without realizing that you have to now define a new normal because mm-hmm. something you're you just experienced really a life altering event. So it's not normal as you knew it for many reasons, whether you have an injury that has changed something, whether you have a long road to recovery. So I think the idea is that if I invite this program in, it's going to keep me from getting back to normal. And so we, we do a lot of work. But again, that's why we have such a we have a 30 day outreach window. So we're constantly mm-hmm. checking in. And sometimes it's just generally, are you going to watch the Super Bowl on Sunday? Right. And they're like, you, who are you rooting yeah, for? And you're like, for? yeah, exactly. yeah. So it, it isn't necessarily always just, so you got shot. Where were you? What were you doing? Like, really, we're just invested in you. So you like school. Right. You're interested in this. You used to have you used to work in a warehouse. What did you like about it? Right. Um, and so we're, we're engaging with them beyond just. You got shot, and I'm here because you got shot. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's the changing point um, that gets the engagement. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of Intune. You're listening to KWRH 92.9 FM. We're talking to Kateri Chapman-Kramer and Malik Cafe about life outside of violence. What are some success stories from love that you oh, can boy. talk about? <laughs> um, wow. I can, I'll jump in. So, um so I get to meet with all of the case managers as the coordinator. So Malik has his stories, but I can share some that I know others have shared. We really um, acknowledge small successes. Um, we have kind of a moment in time with participants that enroll, so we work with them for up to one year. And so I think, um, not I think, I know a couple from those working in the adult hospitals have been gainful employment. And so- That's huge. Huge. And so working through, and so oftentimes the case managers come with frustrations because it's like, we have to take 10 steps to get an ID, birth certificate, social security card, all of the things that you need to even seek employment. And so going from that to then Okay, we've supported with transportation to getting to the interview. We su- supported with clothes for the interview. Right. And then you get the job. And then you've been in the job and you stayed in the job. And now you're getting a paycheck to pay for your own transportation to get to that job. And you're enjoying the job. And you have a sense of self-worth um, to provide for yourself and for your family. And so that's probably, um, there's many of those cases mm-hmm. that we consider successes. Um, another example would be um, someone taking care of their health. And so the case manager kind of consistently addressing, you know, what are your challenges, but a hesitance to maybe access mm-hmm. that care because there is a divide with those systems and community. And so someone following through with the appointments that they need and seeing then the progress that they're making in physical therapy, regaining mobility um, in their arms, or we've had a couple of cases that initially thought they would not walk again as a result of their injury and have made progress towards that being accomplished. And so if left alone without someone to walk through that with them, 
I'm going to say it probably would not be the same result. Um, but so those are just some examples. You know, I, I think that's that's very interesting because I think there are, an assumption is a great word, assume, we all know what assume means. <laughs> and if, folks, if you don't do that, you can Google that and figure it out. But there are assumptions made, I, this is a generalized statement by me, by the general population, that why don't, why don't these people who are in these situations do something? Why don't they, you know, go get a job or why can't they go back to the hospital? You know, we're talking about basic survival here, as you mentioned, Maslow's, you know, number one step. And it's, we're, ta- we're talking about transportation. And we all know how well our transportation system works here in the metropolitan St. Louis area. Okay. Uh, if you don't, you know, look that one up too. Uh, going back for follow-up visits. You know, I've got to go f- from North City or South City to the hospitals, which are kind of centrally located. And how do I get there? Well, there's major lines, but, you know, you have to have money to get a bus pass or a bus ticket or, you know, pay for that. Or, or supplies to, to do the wounds on your own. Or, mm-hmm. you know, gee, if I buy that, then I don't have any food. Or, you know, I've been staying with this person and I don't really have a place that's clean for me. Or, you know, or gee, there's, now there's bed bugs involved and there's other things, you know, and, and it, there's a whole lot of things that are happening. So when people see things and say, mm-hmm. you know, who's responsible for this? Why aren't people taking care of this? How do you respond to that? Oh, boy. That's a uh, big question. That it? is a huge question. Well, I'll go first. Go and I'll for try it. to be. This brief. time to unload. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let her rip. I have, need to watch myself sometimes. Um, <laughs> well, so I'm born and raised in St. Louis City, so I feel comfortable that I can speak at least to some of my experience. I think it is not a secret that there is generational and historic um, racism and segregation, intentionally or not. Um, in St. Louis. Absolutely. And so that is a key contributing factor to keeping certain people in a certain place and with limited access to things that other people have access to. Mm -hmm. And so when people question, well, why don't they just go and do, you know, get a job or whatever else, um, to take a minute to recognize that there are barriers in place Mm -hmm. for certain people to get there. So Mm -hmm. where it may be easy for you, mm-hmm. it is not the same mm-hmm. for that person because mm-hmm. of inequities. Right. Um, and so that's what I would say to them. I was like, take a minute, let's let's learn about what some of your biases may be and what resources do you have that you may be able to get there. So take this person with you mm-hmm. there or help them to get there, give mm-hmm. them the upper hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of the start, the mm-hmm. foundation and how I would respond to people. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I think it goes back to what we were saying um, during the break is it's who's responsible, right? So you have all these other players and other entities that provide services and supports in some kind of way or have a role or a responsibility. And so then we always want to say, well, it's not my job. So clearly it's something either wrong with you as the individual or it's someone else's problem. And so I think when you see an individual trying to get that independence and that self-sufficiency in systems, like Terry said, that are, you know, economic issues, communities where the buses don't run or there aren't bus stops or you have to walk two or three miles um, to get to a bus stop or, you know, we, we've had 
all kinds of challenges and we hear all kinds of stories in the year, what, 18, 16, 18, 18 months, months that we've been doing this for challenges that are just basic needs. And you're right. like, whoa, like you got a kid who to get to school because of another issue, they're out of their school district. So they had to get to school. They were walking at 5 a.m. past vacant buildings. And you're like, that should not happen. Like, why is that a thing? Um, so. I just think it's that we're we're always looking to say that who's responsible, who's not doing their job, or who failed somebody somewhere. Um, and I think it's it's an it's collaborative. Mm-hmm. It, you can't really isolate and say it's just this right here. Um, I think it's definitely too many players at the table to just single out and say, well, this is where we're falling short. And you can't, from your perspective, look at somebody else's life, and from your perspective, ask them why they aren't doing what you think they should be doing because they don't have the same perspective that you have. Correct. They don't have the same opportunities that you have. They may not have a lot of different things that you have. So, you know, live a day in their shoes mm-hmm. and try to figure it out. You know, mm-hmm. do the poverty mm-hmm. example and the poverty. Um, there's a thing in education where you go through simulation. a poverty experience. Simulation, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a very good thing. How about some, some closing remarks that you guys have? We have a couple of minutes here that relate to where the program's going, what kind of uh, things might be changing. I don't want to, you know, you can't change research a whole lot in the middle of a, of a research study as you, you change some of the data and it skews it a little bit. But what, what are some things, uh, where's the program going in the, in the next uh, 18 months? So the, one of the ultimate goals for us, um, since this wasn't a usual care program within the hospitals, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm comfortable saying that we are going to show that this is an effective intervention, and so our hope is that it will continue um, within the hospitals, um, and then potential to maybe expand to other hospitals. So right now it's intentionally the four level one trauma centers, but not everyone's coming to these sites. They may end up there, but um, to really expand to other sites. And I would say grow so that there's more than just one Malik um, at Glennon. So nothing in set in stone yet, but that's part of what we want to show is that it is effective. At the end of the day, it does save money um, for those repeat visits and all of those costs. And so people will want to continue to invest in this type of program. Okay, Malik. Um, I think I echo that is that, you know, the hope is, is that it's the growth of it. Right. Um, I'm, I'm a big propon- like champion for sustainability. So, you know, to have a program like this exist to provide this level of like intimate one to one mentoring and engagement with communities that need it. Um, the, the drive is to make it so that it doesn't just go away so that we weren't this thing like, oh, that one time we had this one program and it was right. kind of cool. Um, but that we can actually be become a pillar of the community and continue to do this work. And so eventually we don't have to do the work because I always tell people it's the unfortunate job. Like you don't want to do this job, but you have to because the need is there and, and we have to do something to intervene. So that that would be the hope. Can I add Oh, absolutely. Um, (laughs) Another vision of this, since this is a regional effort, Mm -hmm. is that we can show um, how it's been effective so that it could be replicated. Right. So as far as we know, there's other cities that have multiple hospital sites, Mm -hmm. but not systems. So if we can show how this worked in terms of sharing information and then with the intervention, we would want that to be replicated if it's beneficial um, in other locations. And then also just in terms of the individuals that we're working with, um, we'd like them to be able, when appropriate, to come back and be mentors for other individuals. Oh, what a great idea. Um, that have been injured by, by, by violent injury. And then ultimately just reduce the number of people 
being hurt in our area. You know, and I've we've talked to a lot of different people over the course of time, and these issues are not solvable in a few months or years. It may be a generation that when we're all gone, that that next group who takes over may experience some of the successes that have been had an investment mm-hmm. placed in them mm-hmm. of like what you guys are doing. And that's that's very unfortunate, but that's reality in, in where we are, I think, in, in some of our situations. I, I know you want to build momentum. I think that's huge. Um, you know, and I, I believe, you know, having individuals come back and be mentors, that, that's that's an extremely big deal because I, I've lived in your shoes. I was there. I understand exactly what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and what you're going through. Uh, you know, and I can show you where I was. Mm-hmm. This happened to me. And those individuals uh, speak volumes to a community and to families and, and to individuals. So Life Outside of Violence, folks, uh, from the Institute of Public Health at Washington University, this program from 2018, it's uh, about 18 months in, in cooperation with WashU, St. Louis U, and University of Missouri-St. Louis, and the four hospitals, BJC, SSM, St. Louis University, St. Louis Children's Hospital, and SSM, Cardinal Glennon Hospital. I want to thank you all for coming on this morning. It's thank been a, a pleasure and Absolutely. to get the information out. You're welcome to come back at any time cool. and talk about any successes or any uh, things that uh, you want to talk about as it relates to that. You have an open invitation on our show, okay? Wonderful. Thank you thank so you. much. You can get more of them from publichealth.wustl.edu. That's the publichealth.wustl.edu. That's what we'll wash you public health website. And we will also post this on our Facebook page and also on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts so you can go back and share that with some of your friends. So a kind of a sobering conversation as it relates to some things that are going on in our area, but it's an encouraging one to know that this particular program is out there and people run programs programs don't run themselves and we've got some excellent folks here involved in what's going on the collaboration between the hospitals what an unheard of thing because most of the time they're not wanting to share anything mm-hmm. uh, let alone medical records so uh, kudos to those uh, uh, health institutions that are doing that and to Washington University and the individuals who launched this program So, folks, we're glad that you joined us today and uh, stuck with us through this particular hour, especially. Don't forget, when the Martians invade, there's only one race, the human race, and every one of us have different characteristics and is uniquely valuable. This is KWRH Radio 92.9 FM. We're in tune studio manager Christopher Dacey, co-host Mark Langston. I'm Arnold Stricker. We thank you for joining us today. Until next time, walk worthy and let your light shine.